Welcome to the Sale Street Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. And for more information about our church, visit salestreet.org. Well, good morning, church. So good to be with you. If you would, grab a Bible and turn with me to the passage that Nevi just read. Again, that was Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, as we're going to continue our study of the life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And while you turn there, let me kind of set it up like this. Uh, you know, there are times in life whenever we see and experience things that are unexpected. They're unexpected. Now, I'm not talking about things that are completely out of the blue. I'm talking about things that are just a little different than what we expected, when things don't fit in our current paradigms, right? Our paradigms are uh, the assumptions that we make about how things are supposed to work. It's, it's kind of the rules that have to be followed in certain situations. And it's not that paradigms are bad things. They can be good things. They can kind of help keep us from being disoriented because we know uh, what to expect. But if we're not careful, then there could be opportunities where we might miss the better things. It's kind of like how for a while, whenever first, uh, computers first came out, how there were some people who saw that just as a passing fad, right? It, it didn't fit into kind of the rules for how the world works. And even for us, Living in South Louisiana, this is often true for us when it comes to food, isn't it? Uh, like if you travel outside of South Louisiana and you go to a restaurant and you order gumbo, then uh, what you are probably expecting to, for it to look like and taste like, it probably comes out uh, a little different. Uh, right now, king cakes are everywhere, and praise God for that. And, uh, and for me, in my mind, uh, there are certain uh, kind of rules for what makes up a king cake, right? And so whenever I go into stores and I see all these kind of crazy alternatives, uh, I don't like it. Uh, honestly, it kind of offends me a little bit. And so uh, the other day, uh, I went into one uh, grocery store and I saw uh, this king cake that was covered in Oreos. And so I know, I feel the same way. And so, uh, and so, um, and so I don't care how good it probably tastes, right? I, I'm not going to try it. On principle, I'm not going to try it. And so whenever we face uh, things that are different, different than what we expected, we really have two paths forward. One, we could, uh, we could reject what's unexpected because it doesn't fit in our paradigms, or we could consider it for what it's worth. Now, when it comes to king cakes, I would say, hey, let's stay close-minded about that, right? But when it comes to Jesus, I want to encourage us to stay open-minded. And I'm not talking about be open-minded about all these alternative teachings about Jesus. I'm talking about being open-minded as to what Jesus shows us about himself. Because if anybody came along and did things in such a different and unexpected way than what everybody expected, that was Jesus. He wasn't at all what the religious leaders expected in his day. They had this narrative already written in their minds as to who the Messiah would be and what he would do and all he would accomplish. And so they had no category for Jesus in their paradigms. There was no category for somebody who cared more about 
preaching than about pleasing the crowds and performing miracles. There was no category for a Messiah who would come as a suffering servant or a Messiah who would be also the son of God. They had no category for that. They had no category for a God of grace in their legalistic system that gave them such an advantage in society. And so when Jesus came, he was so different and he was uh, so much better than what they expected. And so those Jewish leaders, they had a choice to make. They could hold pridefully to the religion that they had created or they could humbly receive the good news of God's grace. And for us as a church, we have the same choice to make. As we continue to learn about Jesus, we can pridefully hold to whatever religion we've kind of created in our minds, or we could humbly receive the good news of God's grace. And so as I've been preparing for this, for this Sunday, I've been, that's been my prayer, right? That we would not hold tightly to our assumptions, but that we would be open-minded, not hard-hearted, not closed-minded, but open-minded and be able to see and embrace his beauty and grace. And so with that in mind, let's pick up now in verse 13. It says, he being Jesus went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And so here when it says he went out again, that means that he went out from Capernaum again. Capernaum was kind of a home base for Jesus' ministry. And so as we saw last week, he just healed and forgave the paralytic. And so now he's going out of town again. He's going around the Sea of Galilee, and he's continuing his ministry. And it says all the crowd was coming to him. And so his ministry was continuing to grow in popularity. And so if you think about the scene that we just saw, he was so popular that People couldn't really get to him. That group of friends that wanted to get the paralytic to him, they couldn't go through the door. There was such a crowd around Jesus that they had to tear the roof off to get their friend to Jesus. Even the first time when he was in Capernaum, crowds gathered around him all night long. And so it was a challenge to get to Jesus. And so he heads out of town. And it's no wonder why everybody wanted to get to him. They're living in a time and in a place where there is limited health care and limited medicine. And not only was he powerful, but he was also compassionate. And so everybody who had need were desperate to get to Jesus. And so he's growing in popularity, but not only that, now we're going to see that he's beginning to grow in notoriety. You know, the religious leaders of the day, they were fine with Jesus performing miracles. That's good. That's helpful. Everybody liked it. But they were not fine with this display of authority to forgive sins. Whenever he forgave that paralytic, whenever he healed him, and whenever he forgave him, they weren't fine with that. Remember what they said in Mark 2, verse 7. They said, he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so what we'll see in chapters 2 through 3 are kind of a string of events where we see this growing disdain of the scribes and the Pharisees toward Jesus and then, of course, we know where that ultimately is going to lead. And so Jesus has gone out, and the crowds are there, and it says he was teaching them. He was teaching them. And so, again, we see of this priority that Jesus places on the ministry of the word. And if Mark is going to keep showing us this, then we're going to keep pointing this out. 
you know, Jesus had a message that needed to be heard, and he had a level of understanding that needed to be taught. And so when the crowds were coming to Jesus, he continued to teach. And for us as disciples of Jesus today, the ministry of the word also has to be important to us. And I would say for us as a church, this ministry of the word is important. I know there are a number of people right now who are in discipling relationships. And throughout the week, they're reading the word of God together and they're studying the word of God together. When we gather together on Sundays, like right now, this is a ministry of the word. And so we're reading the word and we're singing the word and we're praying the word and we're hearing the word preached. This is a ministry of the word. The same is true for our family worship on Wednesday nights, which I'd encourage you to be a part of. Same is true for the youth uh, time of worship, their youth service. That's also a ministry of the word. We also have uh, a lot of uh, amazingly gifted Bible study teachers. A lot of those classes meet on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. Some meet throughout the week. And if you're not a part of one of those, you're missing out because there is a great ministry of the word that's taking place there. And then it's also important for us to keep in mind that it's a priority for us to teach our kids. It's got to be a priority for us to teach our kids. And so we believe and we teach here that that starts in the home. We want, as families, we want us to, to be discipling one another. We want parents to be the primary disciple makers of their kids. But also we've got opportunities when we do gather together to teach our kids. And so they have Sunday school classes at 9 o'clock. For the younger ones, there is a time of worship at this same time. And so whether the kids are in here learning in this environment or whether they're in there, it's a, a ministry of the word. We want them taught. And so if you're looking for an area to serve in the church, I would really encourage you Make Kidsville kind of your, your, your top choice, right? Explore that first. Consider if you can serve there. It might be an opportunity for you to have been to, to teach. And so you can really connect with the heart of Jesus in a couple different ways. He had a heart for children and he had a heart for teaching. And so there might be an opportunity for you there. And what's so nice about the kids is usually if you're, if you're new to teaching, they're pretty gracious about it, right? They're pretty gracious about you trying to figure your way out uh, when it comes to teaching. And so the ministry of the word was important to Jesus and it'll continue to be important to us as well. Verse 14, it says, And he passed by, or as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. So we're probably more familiar with this Greek name. This is Matthew. Levi is his Hebrew name. Matthew is his Greek name. This is the guy that wrote the first book of the New Testament. He wrote one of the Gospels. And so that means he is about to have a life-changing moment with Jesus. It says, he saw Levi sitting at the tax booth, that's important, and he said to him, follow me. And so this is a similar picture to when Jesus first called his disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And it's because of moments like this that I began the message by talking about how Jesus did such unexpected things. We're only a little into chapter 2, and everything that Jesus has done has had a level of shock value to it. And so you think back into chapter 1, when he begins to preach, he doesn't preach a message of judgment like they thought. He preaches a message of good news. Whenever he calls his first disciples, he doesn't call the best and the brightest. He calls some ordinary fishermen. 
whenever he goes into Capernaum, begins to heal, and he's uh, gaining this popularity. He doesn't invest in that crowd. He pulls back because he wants to continue to travel and preach. Whenever the leper runs up, up to him, he doesn't distance himself from the leper. What's he do? He steps forward. He engages. He touches the leper, and he cleanses him. And in chapter 2, whenever the paralytic comes, he not only heals the paralytic, but he forgives his sin. He, he, he claims divine authority in that moment. And then now here, Jesus extends an invitation to a tax collector to follow him. And so whenever we hear this list of events, it might seem a little anticlimactic now. It's like he just cleansed a leper and then he just healed and forgave a paralytic. And now he calls a tax collector to follow him. But for this crowd in this day, hearing the teaching of Jesus, this moment would have been just as shocking to them. This crowd that came to be healed by Jesus and to learn from Jesus, they would have never expected a rabbi to invite a tax collector to come and follow him as a disciple. You see, at this time, the Pharisees were the models of righteousness for the people in this day. And what they modeled was distance from social outcast and disdain for the irreligious. And that definitely described tax collectors at this time. But we see here that Jesus led by the Holy Spirit. He extends himself to Levi, and then he provides a picture for this crowd. He provides a picture of who Jesus came for, and there really was nobody better to provide that picture than Levi. You see, today, tax collectors, you know, they're not the most liked people today, but they were especially hated in Jesus' day. Uh, Israel was occupied by Rome, and so the Jewish people, they were required to pay high taxes. And so as a way for some of these Jews to make a lot of money, they could purchase a tax-collecting franchise. And so when they did, they were required to collect a minimum amount. They had a certain quota uh, to collect, but anything above that, they could keep for themselves. And so what often happened was these tax collectors, they would charge extra, or if somebody couldn't afford to pay their taxes and they had to take out a loan, they would charge some outrageous interest rates to these people. And so what you had was these tax collectors who were Jewish people who betrayed their own people to work for the oppressive enemy. And so now they're getting rich at the benefit and, or at the expense of their own people. And so these tax collectors... They were seen as traitors to the extent that they were seen as unclean. And so they were excluded from mainstream society. They couldn't enter in to the synagogue, and they were prohibited from testifying in Jewish court. They were on the level of murderers and thieves. And anyone who associated with them as a friend was also considered unclean. And so picture this whole scene. Jesus, in front of this Jewish crowd that he's teaching, he goes to Levi, he goes to the tax collector, and he commands, Levi says, you follow me. And so I'm sure Levi was just as surprised as anybody to hear this, right? He wasn't seeking out Jesus. He probably didn't assume he could, and so Jesus sought him out. And Levi didn't clean up his life first. He was sitting in the tax booth whenever Jesus called him. He was in the act of sinning when Jesus called him. And so do you see here that this moment, it isn't separated from the teaching of Jesus. This is the teaching of Jesus. And what's he teaching? What's he showing this crowd? 
he's teaching them that I see sinners. I see tax collectors. I see outcasts. I see the despised. I see the ones who are in such spiritual need. And not only do I see them, but I know them. He says, I know this tax collector. That's Levi. I know the events that brought him to this point. I know his heart. I know everything that he's done. I see him. I know him. And yet I still love him. I extend grace to sinners. The worst of sinners can be transformed by my saving grace. And so how does Levi respond to his grace? He responds with immediate obedience. It says, sitting at the tax booth, Jesus said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. In Luke 5, 28, it adds, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Because that's the power of grace. And so before, you've got this man who loved money so, so much that he was willing to give up everything for it. But now he has found something that's worth something far greater Right Before, the, the grip of greed, it had this grip on his heart, but now that's been loosened by the grace of Jesus. Now before, the things of the world that he was pursuing after, now those things have no value to him because he's found something worth so much more because that, that's what the grace of Jesus does. And so now he is experiencing what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if anyone is in Christ... And in this moment, Levi is in Christ. And so I know that we might look at this and go, well, all he did was get up and begin to follow. But yes, that was a demonstration of his faith. And what do we know? We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's a demonstration of his faith here. He is now a new creation like Paul describes. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. And so he's changed by grace. He drops everything, and he begins to follow Jesus. Uh, later on in Mark, in Mark chapter 10, there's a contrasting story to this one. There's a lot of similarities to this story, but there are also a lot of differences. Uh, the story goes that there is a rich young guy who runs up to Jesus, and he asks the question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus' response is, well, you know the commandments, don't you? It's, you know, the same commandments that Justin read earlier. And he begins to list some of those out. And so that rich young guy, he gets excited. He goes, you know what, I've done all of those since my youth. And I'm sure Jesus in his mind is going, yeah, you probably think you do, but you lack one thing. That's what he tells him. And you lack one thing. You don't have faith in me. And so he gives him this opportunity. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to sell all that you have. I want you to give it to the poor. And then I want you to come and what? Come and follow me. Show me you have faith in me. Come and follow me. But what's the rich man's response? In verse 22 of Mark chapter 10, it says, Disheartened by the saying, he went away. He went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And so you've got these two pictures. You've got Levi who is a sinner, and he's saved. But you got this unnamed rule follower, and he was not. Well, what was the difference? It wasn't their past. It wasn't their performance. The difference was the object of their faith. And so let me ask you, what do you pursue more, money or Jesus? What do you rely on more, money or Jesus? What do you love more, money or Jesus? Or maybe for you, money isn't your concern. You're like, I don't have much of that. But look, we're all rich in some way. 
And so here's a question we all need to consider. Is there anything in our lives that would make us walk away from Jesus if he called us away from it? Is there anything in our life like that? If so, that's the object of your faith. And so what we see in these stories of Levi and that rich young ruler is it, is it illustrates for us that there is one factor that determines our salvation. And that's whether we've received the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only way. Have you received the grace of God through Jesus Christ? And so the story continues here with Jesus and Levi. It continues in verse 15. And in fact, it gets more scandalous. They leave the tax booth, and then they go to Levi's house, and it says, And as he, being Jesus, reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his, and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And so it's kind of got the feel of a celebration. You know, it's kind of like Levi's baptism party, and I love who all is there. Not only is Jesus associating with one unclean person, but now he's hanging out with the whole house full of them. It says there were many tax collectors and sinners. And so these sinners would have included criminals. They would have included prostitutes. And I love that they're drawn to Jesus. And so Jesus brings in his disciples to witness all of this. In fact, this is the first mention of that word disciple in the gospel of Mark. Uh, disciple means learner. These were the people who would follow a rabbi. In this case, they're following Jesus and learning from Jesus. And so I'm sure in this moment that they're a little nervous. I'm sure they're probably kind of holding on to their wallet just in case, you know. Uh, but I'm also sure that they are learning that Jesus' grace has life-transforming power. And so think about this for you. Think about to you in your mind. Who do you imagine as? Who do you think of as a group of sinners? Who, whenever you think about their immorality, who do you picture in your mind? And so I don't know who it is. Maybe it is tax collectors. I don't know. Maybe it's um, child predators. Maybe it's somebody very specific to you that has hurt you or hurt somebody in your family. I don't know who it is. And so now picture a room full of these people. And now imagine that Jesus enters into this room and he enjoys spending time with those people. Does that give you a feeling of, of, of pleasure or does that offend you? And then do you want to enter into that scene? Do you want to extend the love of Jesus to those people or do you want to distance yourself from that scene? You know, the answers to those questions, it probably will help you realize if you relate to the guys in verse 16. And so you've got in this scene, you've got all of heaven rejoicing at the salvation of Levi, but you also have some legalists who in verse 16 it says, and the scribes of the Pharisees, whenever they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so I love that the intrigue of Jesus is so strong that he is bringing together such extremely different groups. You've got the sinners and you've got the scribes of the Pharisees on two complete opposite ends of the social spectrum. That word Pharisee, it came from a Hebrew word that meant the separated ones. And so central to their belief is this idea that those who would be saved are those who would be distanced from 
uh, immorality and distanced from sin. And so everything about their life was about getting away from that. They wanted to be holy. They wanted to be separate. They wanted to be distanced from sin. And so you could imagine if they're looking upon the scene with Jesus, with these types of people, how they're feeling. But what they don't realize is that they could never distance themselves from the sin and immorality in their own hearts. And so for some reason, even still today, even though we've got the New Testament, we've got the gospel of Jesus, we've got this picture of Jesus, we still have in churches today, we still have these legalists, we still have these Pharisees who whenever they see certain types of people come in, they kind of get nervous about it, you know? And they start making comments like, man, you know, they're going to come and ruin this nice thing that we created. They're going to come and they're not going to know our traditions. They're not going to respect our traditions. And I think to all that, Jesus would go, yeah, that's, that's probably good. Because we got to remember that as a church, we're not here to create a nice thing. We're not here to create some nice traditions. We're here to continue the ministry of Jesus by calling sinners to salvation. That's what we're here for as a church. And so I would say that our ability to keep diverse company is actually a reflection of our maturity. And our inability to keep diverse company is a reflection of our immaturity. But look, I realize that with this kind of talk, talking about being around sinners and immorality and all that stuff, I know that that brings about a sense of nervousness. Because there are going to be some people who start thinking, well, what's going to happen is we're going to start compromising on our righteousness. And we're going to compromise on holiness. And look, fair enough, right? Because we are called to that. We're called to be righteous. We're called to be holy, like we talked about in Ephesians. We're called to leave behind the old way of walking. We're no longer walking in darkness. We're walking in light. But we've also got to make sure that we're looking to Jesus to define what righteousness really is. And so for us, righteousness might mean that we plan one less church program so that we might free up in our schedule some opportunity to invite people into our house so that we could share a meal with them. Or righteousness for us might mean that we risk offending some legalists because of who we spend time with. Our mission as a church is to not create a social club. It's to not busy our schedule so much that we can stay insulated from the dark and scary world around us. What we're trying to do as a church is to get all of us to a place where we see ourselves as equipped enough to go out and be missionaries in our everyday lives. That's what we're after with all this. It's not to just have a group to hang out with. It's not just some fun stuff to do. It's not a social club. This is about us continuing the ministry of Jesus that he began. And so you can think about this. Self-righteousness compels you to stay away. But righteousness compels you to go. We're not called to stay away. We're not called to stay isolated. We're called to go. And so notice the question here is this, or the question of the Pharisees is this. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he do that? And that was not a question for them. That was an accusation. Their accusation was Jesus shouldn't be associating with them. But here is another example in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus disregards the expectations that the religious leaders have on him. He cares about one thing. He cares about the will his father has for his life. And so, again, for the second time, he gives us some insight into what that is. He begins to say in verse 17, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those 
who are sick. And so in other words, he's telling these people, he said, look, if I told you to go to the hospital today, your response is going to be, why do I need to go? I feel fine. But if they were feeling the symptoms of their sickness, then they'd be more willing to go. And so he tells them, here's my purpose for being here. Here's why I called Levi. And here's why I'm eating with these sinners. It's because I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And with this statement, he is sending a message to the Pharisees and to his followers. The message to the Pharisees is this. Your lack of love is, in fact, a symptom of your spiritual sickness, and you're completely unaware of it. Your lack of love is a symptom of your spiritual sickness, and you are completely unaware of it. You see, whenever Jesus says that these sinners are sick, the Pharisees would have agreed. Whenever he told them they need some some healing, they needed some care, they would have agreed. But yet what they preferred was that Jesus shun them instead of go and care for them. Instead of ministering, that's what they wanted. They wanted him to shun those sinners and not care for them. And so their self-righteousness and their legalism was like a cancer they couldn't see. They looked good on the outside, but on the inside, they were sick. And so I'm telling you this as not only an illustration, but I'm telling you this as a prayer request. Uh, my sister-in-law, her name is Julia. Julia Mills, my brother Kyle's uh, wife. Uh, the other day, she went to go donate blood. And so she went and donated blood, and uh, they rejected her blood. And so that sent her to urgent care. And then, uh, and so they sent her to the hospital, and they ran some tests, sent her to the oncologist. And the, the results of her test, she was completely unaware of this, that, that she had, I think I'm saying this right, acute myeloid leukemia. It's one of the, the most severe forms of leukemia. Completely unaware. And so within a matter of days, she was sent to MD Anderson, and so now she's going to be receiving treatment for a month, completely unaware. No symptoms, nothing was showing up, completely unaware of what was going on inside. And that's part of what Jesus is pointing out here to these Pharisees, that when it comes to salvation, there's actually an advantage to experiencing the symptoms of your sin. Because then you might feel compelled to go to a Savior. You realize you need a Savior. And so for these Pharisees, if they would have realized their true spiritual condition, he would have realized that he was, Jesus was calling them. They would have repented. They would have turned from their sin. They would have done just like Levi and wanted to follow Jesus. They didn't realize, Romans 3.10, that none is righteous. No, not one. None is righteous. No, not one. Uh, Jesus tells this parable in Luke 18, and he even explains the parable so it's obvious. He says that he tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's the parable. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. He's looking at the tax tax collector, and he's praying to God, thank you that I'm not like this guy, so full of self-righteousness. But then it says the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so then Jesus explains, I tell you, 
this man, talking about the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so that's the message for his followers then, and that's his message for his followers today, that he calls sinners to himself. And this truth, it can help us in two ways. One, it can help us to rightly understand Jesus' calling to us, but it can also rightly, help us to rightly extend Jesus' calling to others. And so when Jesus calls us to follow him, and we have evidence of that by the fact that you're in this room right now. I mean, think about this. Why else are you here? You might feel like, well, somebody just, I don't know, drug me here. I don't really want to be here, whatever. For whatever reason you're here, I mean, think about what a coincidence it is that we're talking about how Jesus calls sinners to himself. And so no matter how you see yourself, even if you see yourself too far gone, Jesus is calling you. He's inviting you. He is saying to you, come and follow me. And so when he does, we need to realize that that call is to sinners to come and follow him. We weren't the righteous. We were the spiritual, spiritually sick who needed the great physician. We were even, like Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Romans 5, 8, God showed his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so what we've got to do when we look at this story of Levi, we've got to put ourselves in the tax booth. We've got to put ourselves in the tax booth. We weren't seeking after Jesus. We weren't living righteously without Jesus. Without Jesus, we were the spiritually unclean. We were alienated from God. And so when Jesus calls us into this life of discipleship, it wasn't a matter of him making somebody good be better. It was a matter of somebody who was spiritually dead needing to be made alive. And so that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said, he said, you got to be born again. It's not about being better. you got to be born again. And so remember, our salvation isn't a reward for the righteous. It's a gift of grace for the sinner. It's not a reward for the righteous. It's a gift of grace for the sinner. And so that's why when Jesus calls us, he calls us to not only leave behind our wrong ways, he calls us to leave behind the wrong motivation for the right ways in our life. He doesn't call us to just do better. He calls us to himself. He says, you come and follow me. And so then when we realize that this story, this is the story of our salvation, when we realize that, then that grace changes our hearts and it changes our lives and now it changes the way we relate to God and then when we see all this, we realize the extent of Jesus' grace toward us, then it begins to make sense why there was such radical life change with Levi. How he leaves everything behind to follow Jesus. He goes from being used by Rome to now being used by the Holy Spirit to write one of the Gospels. He goes from being a traitor to his own people to now being so loyal to Jesus that he's going to be martyred for his faith. But that's what grace does. It radically changes you. It changes your relationship with God, but not only that, it changes your relationship with people. It changes the way you see people. It changes your perspective of what we're called to. Whenever he says, I want you to go extend my call to sinners, it changes the way we see these people. Now it's not from a self-righteous perspective. It's, oh, I was once in that position. I was once that person. And so then it humbles us, and then it also compels us. You know, for uh, Matthew, 
in his account, for Levi in his account, uh, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus also said this to the scribes. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so Jesus is telling them, he's telling us, I'm far more concerned with the condition of your heart toward others than your religious activities. You know, whenever we begin to see that we were those sinners that Jesus called to himself, then it, it changes the way we see people. We realize it's not our job to change people because we can't. It's our job to love people. It's our job to teach people about Jesus. It's our job to teach people what it looks like to abide in him. And then we can sit back and see grace do its work. Then we can see and behold all of the transforming work that only Jesus can do. And so as we continue to pursue Jesus as a church, I think that uh, our understanding of our salvation, it should lead us into greater worship because we then see the grace that was extended to us. But it should also lead us into maybe some unlikely friendships where we might reach out to people who uh, the legalist would say that we shouldn't reach out to. We should probably have some unexpected friendships because the closer that we get to Jesus, the closer that we'll get to those who need him. The closer that we get to Jesus, the closer we'll get to those who need him. And I'm not sure that that's been the perspective of this church in the past. But we can pray that it will be in the future. And so, in fact, let's do that. Let's pray to that end. We'll continue in worship. God, we thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ. He's called us to follow him while we were sinners. He died for us. And he did everything that we needed to be reconciled to you. I pray that we would behold your grace and behold your beauty. It radically changes. Help us to see what we're really called to. Help us to see that we're to continue the ministry of Jesus by calling sinners to salvation. Jesus, you're the only way you're the way, the truth, and the life. Help us to love you more and more. Help us to be compelled more and more to go out and in our everyday lives extend the gospel of grace. And I pray that this would compel us into greater worship. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in Christ.